Well, I want to begin today with a confession. And that confession is that I hate dancing. Now, I'm not against you dancing, like dance all you want. I I grew up Baptist, but I don't have that belief. I just know that I am terrible at dancing, and so I don't do it. I also hate getting rejected. Anybody else hate getting rejected? It's just the worst feeling in the world. So when I was in high school and homecoming came around, I said, this feels like my worst fears. Dancing and rejection all in one. And so I did my best to skip all those dances. But I was a senior. You should go to your senior homecoming. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to ask this girl out. And I was prepared for her to say no. Well, then she said yes. And I go, now I got to go, you know. And so, so we went, and her name was Tara. We double dated with another couple with a girl named Tara. We're like on our way to the restaurant. I'm like, man, I, I wish I was with that Tara. It was just, it was a bad night. <laughs> Apparently my date felt the same way because two hours later she ditched me. I mean, it's just a great, great memory. And so I, I don't look back on that period of high school with fondness. But I'm so glad that I'm not in high school today because I don't have to deal with the promposal. You know what about the promposal is? The promposal is the elaborate ask that you make to somebody to go to homecoming or, or, or prom with you. you. You can cover their car with post-it notes, all with the word prom on it. Send them a pizza. I know this is cheesy, but prom. Uh, don't let me go solo. Prom. These are like the cheap versions. I read this week that the average American family spends $320 a year on the promposal. You're not even to the dance yet. I mean, that, that's like upper, upper three figures, almost four figures. And before you go, man, these millennials, these aren't millennials. This is Gen Z. Millennials have moved on. We're having babies and we're doing our own things. We're doing the baby moon. You ever heard of the baby moon? It's the honeymoon. The couple goes on before their life changes with a new child. There's the push present, the gift that the guy gives the girl for pushing the baby out. Then there's the gender reveal. I know you guys have seen gender reveals online. These get really, really elaborate. You have the, the box that opens up and the color balloons come out. There's the cake you cut open. At least you can eat that. And then there's the, the golf ball. Hopefully he doesn't miss and hopefully it explodes. But recently, there was a moment that happened online that I just felt was fitting and perfect. And it was this gender reveal moment. You see, the guy wants the boy, the girl wants the girl, and they're going to hit this pinata-like balloon, and eventually it's going to explode, and they're going to figure out what kind of kid they're having. It just feels like God willed that balloon to just fly away, you know? But, but that video and, and all of those examples for me really bring something into clarity. That we live in a culture that is obsessed with the spectacular. We are obsessed with the spectacular. Uh, and, and it's not that those things are necessarily in and of themselves bad. I love the creativity. I'm a creative at heart. But the problem is, is what you do that's creative becomes what I'm expected to do that's spectacular. And it creates this situation where we're constantly having to one-up ourselves and each other when it comes to having a baby, going to prom, going on vacation, renovating the house, posting on social media, and it becomes this universal cultural pressure to be spectacular. And spectacular is great the day that you do it, 
But the problem is the spectacular thing you did today becomes the expectation that you're held to tomorrow. The ceiling of what happens today becomes the basement of tomorrow. And there always has to be more and more and more. Last quarter was awesome, but now you got to beat that this quarter. You got a great grade last quarter, now you got to get a better grade this quarter. That's why we have great inflation. Uh, you know, you, you, you did a great Thanksgiving last year, but guess what? In 30 days, you have to, you have to one-up it. You gave a great present last year for Christmas, or you threw a great party. Now you got to one-up it. And there's a word for that kind of existence, and it, is, it isn't spectacular. It's exhausting. And there are many of you in this room and many of you watching online that this is the word that you would pick to describe how you're doing. And it isn't the good kind of exhausting. See, you're surrounded by people today that are wearing shirts like this that yesterday were experiencing the good kind of exhausting. Where you give yourself and you work hard and you do something that matters and you feel accomplishment at the end. Or or you, you give yourself and you spend yourself and you feel physically exhausted but spiritually renewed. Much of the exhaustion we feel is that kind of exhaustion where you win the race and you turn around and said, I think I lost. You climb the ladder and you realize that it was attached to the wrong building. You give everything you have and you realize you wasted it in the wrong cause. And that's the problem with the spectacular and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're in a series called Like Jesus. And we're looking at a specific moment in the life of Jesus. Because we don't consider it enough to just like and admire Jesus. He didn't call us to admire him. He called us to follow him. And so we're saying, what would it be like for us to just shift from liking Jesus to becoming like him? And we're studying the ways that he was tempted to discover that. Last week, we kicked the series off looking at the temptation to be relevant how Satan came to that, came Jesus with that temptation. And the big idea last week was this, that our value is found in who God says we are, not how relevant or useful we feel. And we heard so much feedback over the last week from people of all ages who said, I feel that, I struggle with that, defining myself by what people say about me or how I feel about myself and my usefulness or my relevance as opposed to what God says about me. And today, week two, we're tackling the temptation to be spectacular. When you walked in, along with uh, that Connect card in your bulletin is a handout. We'd encourage you to pull that out and take some notes this morning, because here's the central idea. Here's the big idea we're talking about today. That our culture measures through spectacular, while God measures through faithfulness. Our culture, if it has a measuring tape, it measures through spectacular. While God uses a different measuring system, he measures through faithfulness. And our key text for this series is Matthew chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, a physical one or a digital one, I'd encourage you to pull it out, open it up, turn it on, and go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew is the 40th book in the Bible. It follows Malachi, and it's the first of four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in, in Matthew 4, Matthew records the three ways that Jesus was tempted when he was in the desert, in the wilderness, and he was fasting. We honor God's word at Cornerstone. It's, it is our cornerstone. And we'd encourage you to stand with us right now as we read from the scriptures. You can follow along on the screen. And uh, I'll be reading aloud. In verse 1 it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That's the temptation from last week. Temptation to be relevant. 
But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power that it has. We pray that we would see Jesus in the text today. We pray that we would see what you are speaking to us and even see some of our own struggle in there and that you would show us how to become more like Jesus. In his name we pray today. Amen. You can be seated. I believe this text, specifically verses 5, 6, and 7, include for us four warnings today. And there are four warnings for a spectacular, obsessed culture, which is the one that we're a part of today. And here's the first warning, if you're taking notes. Meeting the expectations of others can be the path to temptation. Meeting the expectations of others can be the path of temptation. When you feel the expectations of others pressing in on you and pushing you down a certain path, put your radar up because that could be the path to temptation. That's what happened in the experience of Jesus. The the scriptures in the Old Testament spoke of the Messiah, Jesus, coming for the Jews, coming to save them. And the scriptures talked about that he would be born in Jerusalem, that he would be of the tribe and line of David, that he'd come through the, the tribe of Judah. But in that day, in that moment, the people were expecting Jesus to arrive in a spectacular way. They had spectacular expectations. They were expecting him to conquer the Romans and free them and set them into a new season of existence. And if there was a place for the Messiah to arrive, the most spectacular venue would be in Jerusalem at the temple. And so Satan takes him there and says, Jesus, essentially, the people are already expecting this. Why don't you just meet their expectations? You have the ability to do this. You have the ability to throw yourself down at the pinnacle of the temple. The angels will catch you. What an amazing arrival that will be. And yet Jesus doesn't follow through with it. He doesn't do it. He says that it's actually a test of God. And the implication is not that it's a good thing. The implication is that it's a bad thing. Just because the people expected him to arrive that way, Jesus is not going to arrive that way. And it's this powerful reminder that just because someone expects it doesn't mean God's honored by it. This might seem really elementary for you, but some of you, like me, wrestle with the temptation to please people, you know? Give people what they want, make them happy, especially people in your family. And we're entering into a season where that temptation roars up really strong. Where are you going to spend Thanksgiving? Where are you going to spend Christmas? What are you going to do? Who's going to be there? Who's not going to be there? What's going to happen? Some of you are already getting a cold sweat down your neck right now with all these things. And and it may go without saying, but just because someone expects you to do it doesn't guarantee that God's honored by it. Even if that person is also a follower of Jesus. And, and, and as a kid, I can't remember my parents. When I was wrestling with peer pressure, they would say this thing to me. They would say, Scott, if everybody else jumps off a cliff, 
apparently the same parent in here, you know? <laughs> I didn't realize I had more brothers and sisters. But we, we tell that to our kids, you know, if, if everybody else does it, you don't need to do it. We're all good at saying that. Maybe many of us heard it. The problem is, we find ourselves jumping off the cliff ourselves every day. We spend money because people who expect us to spend money spend money. We go on the vacation, even though we can't afford it, because they expect it. We upgrade, we trade in, we expand, we renovate, we work more hours. And it's the exact same thing. It's a grown-up version of that childhood struggle. And what Jesus is saying from the very beginning here to Satan is, hey, they may be expecting me to do this, but I'm not going to do this. And I think one way to to summarize that is God didn't create you to meet others' expectations. He created you to fulfill his calling and purpose. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm going to be the Messiah. He never denies that he's not going to be the Messiah. He never denies that he's not going to do things that are spectacular. He raised the dead. He made the blind see and the lame walk. He fed 5,000 people with one or two people's lunch. He's not against doing spectacular things, but he's not going to do them just because people expect him to do them. He's going to do what his father has called him to do. And my great fear right now is there are so many of us they are going to be laying there in the bed one day and we're going to realize that we live so much of our lives simply to meet other people's expectations. We weren't concerned with what God was calling us to do. We were concerned with what they thought and what they wanted us to do. Several years ago, a book came out by a lady named Bronnie Ware. She's an Australian hospice nurse. She's been with thousands of people in their final days. She was a hospice nurse for over 30 years. And she wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. What she heard at the bedside. And the number one regret of the dying was, I wished I would have lived the life I was supposed to live, not the life that everybody else thought I should live. All of you are at least sitting in a chair today here. So you're not on your deathbed. And you have an opportunity today to push back against the expectations of people and step into the calling and purpose of God. And what that might mean is that sometimes honoring God means disappointing people. Sometimes honoring God means disappointing people who are also supposed to be honoring God. There are going to be times as your pastor where I'm going to choose to disappoint you out of a desire to honor God. And those are really hard decisions. Especially when people leave the church because of that. Those are hard decisions when it causes a rift in your family. But you have to decide is meeting expectations of people my calling or is God's purpose on my life my calling? Number two, second warning. Sustaining spectacular is exhausting while what God offers us is refreshing. Sustaining spectacular is exhausting while what God offers us is refreshing. And one of the reasons I think Jesus does not give into this temptation is that he knew that he'd be setting himself up to do it again and again and again and again. That's the problem with the crowd. The crowd always expects another performance. If you know the story of Jesus, you know that in the book of John, Jesus feeds the 5,000 really early. 
It's an amazing miracle. Again, in that day, they didn't have a fridge at home stocked with food. They didn't have a pantry stocked with food. They were following Jesus, and there were no 24-7 drive throughs There was no Uber Eats. You either had food there with you, or you were going to go hungry. So he feeds them, and they come back to him. And what do they want? They want more food. So what does he say? Eat me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. So it's a little Halloween-ish, you know? And it says that the crowd dwindled because they weren't interested in Jesus. They were interested in the spectacular. And Jesus was refusing to become a performer. And many of us have given into the temptation to be spectacular and we feel like we're on a tightrope. We have to live up to and sustain the expectations of people and be spectacular again and again and again. Let me tell you how I felt the greatest temptation to write the most spectacular sermon this week when I decided to write a sermon on the temptation to be spectacular. It's amazing how much you're tempted to be spectacular when you're writing a sermon about being spectacular. Because every time I do something, okay, should I do that? Am I doing that for the right reason? Am I doing that because I'm really spectacular? I was having this little conversation with my head. I was convicting myself and I hadn't even given the sermon yet. It was a great week. Um... (laughs) But when you walk on this tightrope, and I think I'm surrounded by tightrope walkers today, you begin to wrestle with feelings of exhaustion. You feel wounded. You begin to feel angry. And you even feel resentful. Some of you who are wrestling with the temptation to spectacular, you're doing things for people that you think you love, but what you really feel is resentment. Again, this series is not as much about what we do, it's about why we do it. What the spectacular will do when you try to sustain it is it will lead you to a place where you do the right things and you do good things, but you do them for the wrong reasons. And a a building resentment grows. And to those of us that are tempted to the spectacular, Jesus makes a very profound invitation in Matthew 11. He says, come to me all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you more to do. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will add things to your list. No. It says, I will give you rest. And the Bible calls people who will not work lazy, and it calls those who will not rest sinful. The most broken of all the Ten Commandments is the one about rest. And if you know the story of the creation narrative, God creates Adam on day six. And what does Adam do on his first full day of life? He rests with God. And if you're going to live a life that's spectacular, you will never get to rest. Because you have to do it all. You got to keep all the plates spinning. You have to be spectacular and win all of the awards. You can't get help. You have to build it yourself. And so you're using the little Ikea instruction sheets with the pictures and not the words. And eventually what you find is that you're doing it all alone. Isolation is a pervasive problem in our day. 
The Surgeon General of the United States has called it the number one health threat to Americans. And it's not just a threat to our health, it's a threat to our relationship with God. Because we've got this idea over the years that if we have the Bible and we have Jesus, we have enough. And theologically speaking, that may be true. But if you know what happens right after this text we read, when Jesus finishes the third temptation next week, the very first thing he does is he goes and he calls 12 disciples. Because he was not going to do this alone. He knew what Henry now and later record in his book on this subject of scripture. He said, I have found over and over again how hard it is to be truly faithful to Jesus when I am alone. If you want to be like Jesus, you are not going to do that by yourself. If Jesus needed 12 people, you need at least one. Because you're not better than Jesus. Or do you think you are? See, what Satan will do is he will isolate you so you are more vulnerable to temptation. And that path will take you away from Jesus. This is why we pound the drum at Cornerstone about community groups. Not because our groups are perfect. I mean, heck, I lead one. Ours is far from perfect. But I can't be the person God made me to be by myself. And neither can you. And so our groups are a step away from isolation and a step towards community. It's the same reason we have a volunteer fair out in the lobby today. Because you won't become like Jesus unless you do what Jesus did. And that is to serve other people in the context of community. Even what I'm doing right now, you may think this is like a solo act. It is not a solo act. I wrote this sermon with the help of a lot of people who are smarter than me in books and commentaries. And I sent an email on Tuesday to a brilliant designer who designed these slides. And on Wednesday, I sent an email to our staff member who puts together your handout. Then on Thursday, five people, I, sat in, I stood in front of them and I gave this sermon. And they removed all the parts that aren't good. And I left them all out. There's somebody back there who's making sure you can hear me. Somebody back there right now that if my clicker were to die, he would take over. Somebody back there who's making sure you can see me. Somebody's way up there and he's running the cameras so that 80 people can watch me online from wherever they are. Someone else will edit that tape to make sure you can forward this sermon if it's worth half a quarter and to somebody who would enjoy it. Even this act is an act of community. I couldn't do this on my own. And so this calling is there in front of us and reminding us that Jesus isn't looking for us to follow him alone. He's calling us to be faithful to him with others. And so often the reason that we don't grow in our relationship with God is we're trying to grow by ourselves. The third warning that comes from this text is that we test God when we expect him to bless what's outside of his will. We test God when we expect him to bless what's outside of his will. If you were here last week, you saw Satan tempt Jesus, turn the stones into bread. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, I believe, saying, man isn't by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, Satan's not stupid. So when he comes to tempt Jesus again, what he does is he tempts him with this thing, and Jesus says, again, it is written. Jesus quotes scripture again. You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. But Satan is smart. And so what Satan did before Jesus replied this way is he brought scripture He takes him to the holy city, setting him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan knows the Bible too. 
He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's trying to tempt Jesus using God's word. But he makes a fatal mistake. The word and right here is is there because what Satan does is he quotes this, and he quotes this, but he leaves something out. That and is basically like a dot, dot, dot. It's an ellipse. Because Satan's quoting Psalm 91, which says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, not and, this is what's in the end, in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What Satan neglected to include is the most important part. Because if you read Psalm 91 written by David, what you see is that God promises to guard and protect and be concerned with those who honor him in all their ways. And when we honor God in all our ways, he promises to join us in that. He doesn't promise to bless everything we do, especially those things that are outside of his will. And some of us have gotten this idea over the years that Jesus is like that magic eraser you buy at the store that'll take anything off. That he's Gugon or Windex or whatever your favorite cleaning utensil is that removes all the stains. Yes, he promises to forgive. But if you read this book, you know what you find? God forgives, but he doesn't protect people from consequences. And what, what Jesus is saying is don't put the Lord to a test and think that if I do the right thing at the wrong time, he's just going to bless it. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Jesus is not going to come back to all of our mistakes and remove all the consequences of them. So often what our culture hears when we talk about forgiveness is somehow God removes all the consequences. No, no. Yeah. You can be made with, right with God like that. If you made a mess of your life, that's why you're here today, you can be made right with God today. But you may not be right with the people that you hurt today. You may still pay a price on earth today. There are consequences in this world to our sin and brokenness, and God doesn't remove them. And we test God when we expect him to bless things that are outside of his will. He's not going to do that. And then this is the final warning. God doesn't call us to the spectacular. He calls us to faithfully serve. If you're feeling the temptation to do something spectacular, that temptation is not God. The voice of God is a call to what he did. And he summarizes that in Matthew 20. Jesus calls his disciples to him and he says, Guys, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over the Gentiles. And their great ones exercise authority over them. What does he say next? It shall not be so among you. That's not how we're going to go, guys. Whoever would be great among you, you might say whoever would be spectacular among you, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus rejects right there on the pinnacle of the temple, he continues to reject all the way to the cross. He's not going to go the most spectacular way. He's going to go the way of faithfully serving. 
And we all love the idea of serving when we get a t-shirt and a picture taken and a thank you note and a pat on the back. But what happens when you serve and somebody treats you like a servant? Uh, Four and a half hours ago, in my kitchen, at my house, we were getting ready for church. My kids were packing their bags full of snacks to be able to eat because they're here all morning because one of them is home getting over being sick. And one of my children, my youngest son, was packing his bags and we were telling him what he needs to include for his lunch today. And at a certain point, he screamed out at us in frustration with the direction we were giving him, I'm not the servant! (laughs) My wife and I locked eyes with one another. And we said, oh, this is going to be a teachable moment. And 15 seconds later, I said, you just made the sermon. Um, But then I was driving here. And I realized I did the exact same thing. I love the idea of serving. Until somebody thinks they can take advantage of me. I love the idea of serving until too long goes by without anybody noticing me. I love the idea of serving when I'm energetic. But when I'm tired and I feel like it doesn't matter and nobody notices and I'm not getting treated with the respect I deserve, I go, forget this service stuff. See, what Jesus is saying is if you want to be like me, it's not about pursuing the spectacular. It's about faithfully serving. This is where it gets real. Some of you are in a season right now where your life feels so far from spectacular. You feel like what fills your days is nothing that is spectacular. You're raising kids. No one's throwing a for your family t-shirt party, you know? And you're wondering, are they ever going to learn how to use the bathroom? Are they ever going to sleep through the night? Are they ever going to stop talking back? The answer is no on that one. Um, (laughs) You're caring for an elderly parent who doesn't know how to thank you. And you know the future. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. You're working at a job where you haven't got a promotion and you haven't got a raise. And you don't feel like what you're doing matters and you don't feel like anything that you do is noticed. And it's in that place that this is where it applies. This is where you get to be like Jesus who didn't come to be served, but to serve. You weren't asking him to come save you. Guess what? He did anyway. And he's calling you to obey him and he's asking you to trust him with the outcome. You know what I see over and over again in life? The people who do the most spectacular things are the people who are least concerned with the spectacular. They choose to invest day after day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And then later on people go, oh my gosh, what an overnight success. And they know the truth. It was an overnight success. About 7,000 overnights that nobody saw 
no one thanked them for, and no one appreciated. That's why I love this quote right here. Obedience is our responsibility. Outcome is God's. And the temptation to spectacular will get you focused on what is God's responsibility while neglecting your own. We don't get to decide if our lives in this world are going to be perceived as spectacular or not. But every single day we wake up and we get an opportunity to decide, am I going to be faithful where God has placed me? And am I going to take responsibility for what is mine and trust God for what is his? And if you go, how do I do that? Turn your sheet over. Here's some next steps. The very first one is this. We begin by choosing to receive God's love. We're not going to do this today to earn God's love. We're going to choose to receive God's love. And once you write that six-letter word in the blank, I want you to, to put your sheet down, put your pen down, and close your eyes. Everybody in the room, everybody watching online, every eye closed. Take a big, deep breath. take your next breath in, I want you to say these words silently. Thank you, God, for loving me. Thank you, God, for coming for me. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. Thank you, God, for saving me. One more deep breath. Open your eyes. You will never be more loved by God than you are right now. There is nothing you can do from this day forward to earn you more love than you have right now. He demonstrated his love for you when he came and died for you and you were looking for him. This life is not about earning and achieving God's love. You already have it. So if you're going to pursue a life of faithfulness, it starts with receiving God's love because you're going to be tempted to take what is a gift and try to earn it as a wage. It all starts right there. Number two, identify the area where you feel tempted towards the spectacular. Where does this get personal for you? Is it in your family? Is it in your friendship? Is it at work? Is it on social media? Is it with your vacations? Is it with your spending? Is it with your house? Where is it? Where is the area you feel tempted to be spectacular? Number three, confess that temptation and your recent track record with it to a trusted friend or your community group. Talk about it. Because Satan defeats us when we're in isolation. And when you have the courage to take a trusted friend and say, you know what? This is where I struggle. This is where I'm vulnerable. Here's how I'm doing. You know what you begin to find? Freedom. James 5.16 says that we are to confess our sins one to another. Why? So that we may be healed. And in that context, it says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You say, Scott, I'm too scared to do that. Well, then you're just going to continue to get defeated. Because you're not strong enough on your own. You need help. Number four. Write down in a paragraph describing what it would look like to be faithful in that area instead of being spectacular. The challenge is that most of us are more familiar with the spectacular than we are the faithful. 
So take some time to go, what would it look like if I began to reject that temptation in this area to be spectacular and I decided to be faithful instead? What's it going to look like when when you do that? And then finally, number five, I want to encourage you to meditate on Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. And we're going to start doing that right now. So as everybody in the room, again, close your eyes. Every eye closed, every head bowed. Matthew 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.